Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. There's no shortage of museum building these days, even as the pandemic persists. In today's episode, we consider a few things to bear in mind when evaluating both museum buildings and other culturally significant projects. Some observations from one of the leading architecture critics anywhere. The question of what do we do about bad men and bad artists is one that has animated essentially the entire history of art. Caravaggio was a murderer. What do we do? Does that mean we're not supposed to look at those paintings and enjoy them? If you stop listening to every song by a misogynistic rock musician, then you wouldn't have any rock music. That was Mark Lamster, the architecture critic of the Dallas Morning News, a professor in the architecture school at the University of Texas at Arlington, and a Loeb Fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. His biography of the late architect Philip Johnson, The Man in the Glass House, published by Little Brown, was a finalist for the 2018 National Book Critics Circle Award for Biography. In 2021, he was awarded the Rabkin Prize for Arts Journalism. He's been a contributing editor to Architectural Review, Design Observer, and ID, and writes often for Architect, Architectural Record, and Metropolis, among other design titles. His work has appeared frequently in national publications and magazines, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Wall Street Journal. He's the author of several books, a contributor to many others, and for more than a decade served as a senior editor at the publishing house Princeton Architectural Press. He's a native of New York City and now lives with his family in Dallas. He holds a BA from Johns Hopkins and an MA from Tufts. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I am so glad you're here, and there's so much to catch up on. You recently reviewed Stephen Hall's new Kinder Building at Houston's Museum of Fine Arts, and you gave it a thumbs up. <laughs> at the same time, you note, quoting here, the profession has tried to recast itself as more modest, contextually driven, environmentally attuned, at least in theory, diverse, baby steps here, socially responsible, sometimes, and reflective of the collaborative nature of contemporary practice. But then you go on and you absolve the project of any blame for shortcomings in these areas because it's so aesthetically pleasing. Can you gush a little bit about the building for us? Sure. Well, I'm not sure I totally absolve it of all these things. I was really listing the issues that are confronting current architectural practice and noting that the kinder comes at sort of an angle to these. It's sort of mm -hmm. an, a throwback project. But I can gush about it because two things. One is it's just beautiful. It's a really, really beautiful building. Glows like this marvelous object in the evening. The exterior is comprised of these white glass tubes, uh, vertical mm -hmm. glass tubes. And over the course of the day, they very much change in character. So it's this amazing building that changes its entire nature depending on the light of the day or the evening. And it, it's just a, a beautiful object. More importantly, I suppose, is that it also is just a fantastic place for looking at art. It has galleries of varying different scales and sizes. They're idiosyncratically shaped. I, I, we've gotten kind of used to these sort of sameness of galleries, the grid of mm -hmm. galleries, and you go from one to another, and they're all sort of rectangular. I feel like every uh, other museum in the United States at this point is designed by Renzo Piano. Um, this, no, I think it's only 22 museums at this point. Exactly. So it's nice to have some an alternative. 
And the light is beautifully controlled in the building. There's never glare, but everything is well lit. Navigation is, it's not just super logical. You can kind of uh, get yourself a little bit lost, but you're never too lost. So I just really think it's a special place for looking at art. And I really appreciated that. How the art appears in the building is of paramount importance. And Stephen Holt did a beautiful job on this project, in my opinion. Yeah, and he's had his practice, of course, building great museums and different types of museums. The Nelson Atkins was, I think, a success in many ways. And this is a building that's learned from that. The sunlight is a bit different in Houston than it is in Kansas City. Uh, yeah, well, Houston's the jungle. Um, and he's done, you know, the jungle in Houston. He's done Kiasman Museum in Helsinki. I guess he couldn't get any farther than that. The Bellevue Art Museum in Washington, which... Yeah. You know, it wasn't necessarily a success. It had to close, I think, because it was, you know, the budget for the building blew out. So I think, you know, Stephen Hole has a somewhat mixed record, but when he's good, he's he can be really, really, really good. There you are with good, which is the term of a critic in terms of quality, aesthetic reward, the joys of light and shape and so on. But back to the topic you started with around the state of the enterprise of architecture. The recasting of the profession to be more sensitive to contemporary concerns is definitely a thing now, as it is throughout the cultural landscape. Is there a firm you see, an architect you see as exemplary in balancing good design with the norms of social empathy that are now expected? Well, I hate to call out one individual firm and say they're doing it right because I think it's an ethos that is sort of transforming the entire profession. Mm-hmm. But if I do have to name a couple, that same story about the Tinder, the second part of it was really about the transformation and the rehabilitation of the Rothko Chapel, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, deteriorated dramatically and, the New York-based architecture firm ARO, Architecture Research Office, is responsible for bringing that building back to life. I'd never really responded well to the Rothko Chapel. I, it's you know one of these places that uh, is considered like absolutely sacred, and some people adore it. But my vision isn't fantastic, so I'd always gone into that space and found it kind of dead, and the bill and the painting's dead. But with the restoration of the building, it's, they brought those paintings to live, and it's, it's really an extraordinary space. Mm-hmm. But ARO is a, is a firm I really respect. They work at all scales. They don't have a sort of a look that is an ARO. You don't necessarily see a building that can say, that's ARO. They mm-hmm. work very contextually, very attentive to the environment, contextual issues. I, they elevated a female practitioner to partner. So I, I think the equity is really important to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually what one of the interesting things in relation to Stephen Hull is that the two founding principles uh, of ARO both came out of the Stephen Hull office. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a DNA there. Yeah. So that's a firm I really respect. Another, I think an interesting firm to talk about would be Mass Design Group mm-hmm. uh, based in Boston. And this is a a new, not that new, actually, they actually recently won the Cooper Hewitt National Design Award, but they do most almost entirely pro bono work. 
uh, often in the healthcare and in social equity field, based in Boston, comes out of Harvard. They do a huge amount of work in Africa, but I think the most prominent work has been in the United States. It's been the Memorial for Peace and Justice. Uh, mm-hmm. They worked with uh, Brian Stevenson, who's pretty well known at this point in Montgomery. And so it's the quote unquote lynching memorial in Montgomery, yeah. which is one of the most extraordinary built environments I've ever experienced. Yeah, it's staggering. And the Legacy Museum is also a great institution. And actually, Souls Grown Deep, our foundation, just put some work in their permanent collection. So we're very excited to see that come to pass. Now, Mark, the recasting of this profession takes me to ask you a question about another line in that review, noting that Hall isn't viable as a winner of the Pritzker Prize, the so-called Nobel Prize of Architecture. But then you even question whether the prize is obsolete. And I'm wondering if that's because you feel that architecture and the heroism attached to it feels dated today. Yeah, I mean, I think that's basically it. That sort of picking out geniuses is is a dated concept. I think the Pritzker also has a pretty dubious legacy of doing this. You know, I wrote the biography of Philip Johnson. He was the first Pritzker winner. Um, The jury was completely stacked. It included his (laughs) college roommate uh, and two people who worked for him. You know, in the past, it's chosen Robert Venturi without Denise Scott Brown. They still have it. Organization refuses to make amends for that. Recently selected Aravena, literally the first year off, he, he was on the jury for seven years. Uh, and then the first year off the jury, they gave him the Pritzker Prize. So to me, it always just seems a little dubious. And, but So the history of the prize is, seems to me a little dubious and checkered. And, and more importantly, I, I'm just not sure what it's getting us at this point. Unlike the MacArthur, and if you and I had both been recipients of the MacArthur, we might not disparage it. Oh, I'm waiting. I'm just presuming it's only a matter of time. (laughs) Exactly. But Uh, for you, you, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So are you saying that the Pritzker Prize represents a kind of heroic gesture of the past that feels out of step with the moment? And what would replace that appreciation and acknowledgement in your view? Well, the great thing about being a critic is you get to just complain about things and you don't have to necessarily suggest what the the better alternative Mm. would be. Right. Um, I, I'm not sure, you know, we need that award and I'm not sure what awards we do need. I, I think there's a value to the publicity that comes with that kind of prize. But aside from that, I'm not, I'm not actually sure what, it, what it's accomplishing. Interesting. You mentioned Renzo Piano, who of course is also a Pritzker Prize victor. Is the time passed for him or is he still very much on top of the heap? I think he's still very much on top of the heap. He's just opened this Academy Museum in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it yet. I've heard positive things about it, but I'm quite interested to see it. Obviously, the Whitney in New York, fairly recent. You know, He's building constantly. He's very much what museums want. He's a wonderful, wonderful architect. He's mm-hmm. built many, many wonderful buildings, some of the most beautiful buildings uh, and successful museum buildings in the world, including the, you know, we're talking about the Kinder Building. Well, the Menil is a masterpiece. And the corporate um, museum trustee boards, they love a charming accent and they 
love, a dependable quality that they can rely on. They know they're getting something positive. So I think it's, he, he remains very attractive as, a, as an architect, and, and, and as well he should. He's, he's a wonderful architect. I'm not, I don't have any axe to grind with Renzo Piano. No, and the Academy Museum, as you say, has all the attributes of what that institution seems to have needed for so long, the Motion Picture Academy, and it's exciting to look forward to it. Let's talk about your book, The Man in the Glass House, Philip Johnson, Architect of the Modern Century. So like Coco Chanel, it turns out that Philip was a Nazi sympathizer and apologist for about a decade and then reformed himself only after the end of World War II. And you go into this in the book, but I'm wondering how should we deal with that fact when evaluating his career as an architect? Well, this is a really interesting subject to to be addressing now. One thing I will say is I think he was something more than a sympathizer. He was an active proponent. Yeah. And really a, a, a Nazi agent uh, in active in the United States. And the only reason he wasn't put in prison for that activity was because he didn't accept money for it because he was independently wealthy. Mm-hmm. That being said, the question of what do we do about bad men and bad artists is one that has animated essentially the entire history of art. Caravaggio was a murderer. What do we do? Does that mean we're not supposed to look at those paintings and enjoy them? If you stop listening to every song by a misogynistic rock musician, then you wouldn't have any rock music. You're pointing these things out, and yet that's exactly what's happening. We're seeing curricula stripped of figures in history and literature who are now felt to be out of step with our time. We're seeing exactly that type of redaction happening, no? Yeah, we are, and I think it's a little dangerous. So I think, to me, the question, and and in fact, Philip Johnson has had it happen to him. There was a move, uh, recent movement to have his name pulled down from the wall at MoMA and uh, taken off the wall at Harvard, uh, where he was a graduate student and an undergraduate, and where that owns the uh, house that he built for himself as a a thesis project when he was in graduate school. His name was actually never on the house, so it's sort of ironic being that it was asked to be taken off because there was no there to take off. But mm-hmm. to me, the question is you, you can't remove Johnson from history because he's so central to it, uh, nor can you erase his activities in the past from history. I think you need to just understand it and think about that context when you're looking at it and understand it. And then there's a question as to whether you forgive it or whether you don't forgive it. And that's somebody going to be every person's personal choice. Um, and I would note that Johnson became quite close to Shimon Perez, who was a you know president of, of Israel. He built a nuclear reactor in Israel. You can discuss the moral the morality of that project. Yeah. And you mentioned in the book that to expiate his sins, he built a synagogue shortly. He did build a synagogue and then there's, but you know, he also didn't take payment for it, but you know, he was also fairly frank that this was a nice loss leader for his young practice. He had never built a project like that large. And um, there was something certainly cynical you could say, or, or at least opportunistic in, in these activities. So, but those were the two sides of Johnson. Johnson was a walking contradiction. One of his magical abilities was to live on 
two sides of any polar debate uh, at the same time. So he could yeah. be both genuinely apologetic and also cynical and opportunistic at the same time. Now, those things seem like impossible, but yet he, he sort of managed it. And you're not a cynical man, of course. No one would ever accuse you of being a cynic. Who, me? So no. what, <laughs> what led you to want to write this book? Well, I think it's especially pertinent, given the discussion we've just had, is that I don't really think you can understand American architecture and the American story without understanding Johnson. And I think he, and the history of the American city, the history of the architectural profession, the history of uh, American building, Johnson is perhaps the central figure in the 20th century of that, you know, story. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I also feel like his life, he led this epic life and it was very, very much, uh, reflective of the American century of, of the positive and also the negative. Um, so I, I felt like it's, it was an opportunity to sort of tell that story through the lens of this very complicated, mm -hmm. challenging, difficult man. And I've, yeah. I've a really, uh, satisfying, entertaining, thoughtful book. Yeah, and it is that. One challenge being his glass house of 1949 is much lauded, but many believe it to be derivative of Mies van der Rohe's plans for a house for Dr. Edith Farnsworth in Plano, Illinois. Where do you stand on that subject? Well, I don't really think there's any question that it's derivative. I, he made no bones of the fact that it was derivative. Uh, Mies certainly thought it was derivative. He... <laughs> Uh, showed up one day, compared it to a hot dog stand, and refused to stay there. Um, but the truth is that although it is very much inspired by the farm, and part of what Mies was so upset was that uh, Johnson, just to background, was that Johnson had been the great proponent of Mies in the United States, introducing his work here, he had been a client of Mies, and he had been, as the chief uh, of the architecture department at MoMA, he had been, you know, the, the leading proponent, uh, proponent of bringing Mies and showing his work at the museum uh, and introducing him to the American public. Um, mm -hmm. and, and through that, in a critical exhibition in 1947 of Mies's work uh, that Johnson was responsible for uh Mies essentially curated it, but Johnson was the director of the department at that time, so he had access to all of uh, Mises' materials, and part of that material was the plans for the Farnsworth House, which was not yet built. Mm -hmm. um, and Johnson saw those, was inspired by those, and then built his own house before <laughs> Mies could get the actual original thing built. So right. I think there was that kind of like that created a, a little bit of animosity there, sure. a, a, a friction. That being said, uh, although it's inspired by it, it's completely different, right? The, mm -hmm. the Mises house is white. Johnson's is sort of the steel framing is black. More importantly, Mises is elevated off the ground. Johnson's is really set into the ground. Right. It's very much a symmetrical composition, classically so, like a temple, and uh, as opposed to Mises' asymmetrical composition. 
And you really also can't understand the glass house if you don't understand it in relation to the entire compound around it. Johnson right. didn't just build a glass house. He built in a compound with this whole series of other follies and buildings, including the guest house, brick house, which was its sort of doppelganger, bricked up right. doppelganger. And Johnson, and then there's the aspect of Johnson being this gay man in a glass house who liked to throw stones, you know, sitting literally feet from, you know, the, the road, the public road, Ponis Ridge Road. It was a very provocative stance mm-hmm. um, yep. uh, and thing to do. So, yes, it was inspired by the Farnsworth. If you're a Miesian purist and prone to find Johnson to be an irritating, you know, acolyte, um, then, of course, you, you, you would may detest it. Um, mm-hmm. for many reasons, but I, I think that would be giving it short shrift. Speaking of another modern house, Mark, in Columbus, Indiana, is Miller House and Garden, which I acquired for the Indianapolis Museum of Art. And it, like the Farnsworth House, it's near a floodplain. What do you make of that property and of the marvel of Columbus, Indiana? Well, uh, the dirty truth is, I've never been to the to Columbus, Indiana. I feel really guilty about that being an architecture yeah. critic, <laughs> and especially being a huge um, acolyte fan uh, of admirer of the work of of Era Saarinen. Um, that house is just—it's an extra. I mean, I know that the Miller House. Like, I feel like I've—I haven't actually been there, but I feel like I've been there because mm-hmm. I've visited it in so many photographs and writings about it. It's just one of the great American uh, works of architecture, works of residential architecture. Um, Yeah. And and it was an amazing concept in 1957 to try to recruit executives to Cummins Engine Company, which Mr. Miller was the CEO of, by saying to them, you know, we're not a backwater. So he called the Yale School of Architecture, got the names of all the leading architects in the world, and then gave rewards to any civic or religious or political building in Columbus, a town of 40,000 people, if they would draw their architect from that list, which explains Columbus's ascendance. It's an amazing epicenter of design. So you have to get there. It's a little hothouse of wonderful architecture, and I definitely... I definitely need to go there. Yeah, you and anybody who's near Chicago, it's not that far. So, And it's 45 minutes from Indianapolis. Now, speaking of Saarinen, what do you think of the adaptation of his TWA terminal at John F. Kennedy Airport as a hotel? So this had just actually been on my mind, uh, oddly. Um, it being recently the 20th anniversary mm-hmm. of 9-11, a week before that horrible day, I had been up on the 90-something floor of the towers uh, visiting the Port Authority um, to look at their plans uh, for transforming the TWA terminal and building a new terminal behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, a week later, a catastrophe happens. And it's now been tw- it took twenty years if you think about that. So that's mm-hmm. that was in two thousand and one, mm-hmm. and and only you know like what two three years ago now did they finally get this terminal uh, reanimated. I think it's it was a very very challenging idea of how do you what do you do about JFK 
and the difficulty of JFK. I think they did a wonderful job with the term, the TWA terminal itself, restoring it. Yeah. And it's just, you know, fantastic to be in there to try, you know, to step back into 1962 and whatever it was and, and, and experience that world again. Yeah. And, uh, the building, the the hotel, you know, I think is about as good a solution as you can have. It's attracted a lot of, you know, architecture people who'd like just go and visit and get to spend some time in the building. So I mm-hmm. think the main thing is it's great to have that building open again to the public. It reminds me of the World's Fair. That moment of design is captured a bit in TV, like on the series Mad Men for younger people. It's so extraordinary to see come back to life. I agree with you. Whereas here in New York, we also have the sprawling Hudson Yards development, which many call Dubai on the Hudson. And and it seems to me better suited to Houston. But what are your thoughts about this development? It's kind of this, it's anodyne. It's just the tale of where New York has gone. Uh, This immense glassed space. I wrestle with it. It does look like something from another from another city because it's sort of self-contained off to the side it's not super well integrated it has this ridiculous vessel and with a giant luxury mall in it and and actually philip johnson <laughs> ages ago had proposed the a mixed mixed use development for that site mm-hmm. with a lot of housing and schools and just the scale of it now, I wonder if like the city is, is eating itself a little mm-hmm. bit. It's so anomalous in New York, which is a city of neighborhoods, and this is uh, almost an invented neighborhood that just arrived and landed. It's hard to give it much character and much humanity. It's, it seems a little bit inhumane. Mm-hmm. The, the money is spent on making a mall. What makes cities great is that they're cities and that there are people who can do inventive things. And the small business person who are the restaurateur, the jewelry maker, the baker, the whatever can, you know, start their thing and have it be good and have it be natural. But like when you start do building these malls, all you, you end up with sort of a corporatized homogeneity. And I think that's part of the problem with like um, this sort of corporatized mega culture mm-hmm. that is these buildings uh, inevitably require given their rents. Right. Speaking of mega, what about super talls? How much longer do we have to endure these things? And are they are they the harbingers of the end of capitalism, Mark? How do you explain them? The end of capitalism, you'll have to ask an economic historian, uh, but um, that's not, it's a little outside my Or, or are my they the realm. San Gimignano of our time? What are they exactly? Well, San Gimignano has lasted a pretty long time. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure how to read these things. I think it's interesting that none of them are occupied. They all are having these sort of problems with building code. Are they actual buildings meant to for people to inhabit or are they vertical you know banks where mm-hmm. there is it's essentially like a a place to land an investment capital mm-hmm. um so 
You can fill them with Bitcoin all the way to the top. Yes. I mean, um, <laughs> they're kind of like the same thing. So, you know, I don't think I'd want to live on the 90th floor of a building just because part of the joy of living in the city is convenience. And if you have to like wait nine minutes for an elevator and it breaks down, you know, if, what happens when your elevator breaks down and you live on the 90th floor? It just doesn't seem, you know, if you can afford to live up on one of those things, why don't you just, you know, move on to Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue or something, you can afford it. So to me, they just seem like uh, absurd, but that's the native New Yorker in me. Architecturally, they're interesting in terms of the technology they use, but I generally, I, I find them obnoxious in that shadows they cast, but um, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> right. They probably won't be easy to demolish, but we don't have to get ahead of ourselves. No, they, they won't. And uh, it's very disturbing. <laughs> it's a disturbing <laughs> thought. Yes. It's a disturbing so, thought. Well, let's end on a high note. What are you looking forward to that's coming out of the ground in the next year or so? Wow, that's a great question. I have my mind so like focused on the city of Dallas and its issues that I'm not really sure about what, you know, big things are coming Mm -hmm. along down the pipe or that I should be like super excited about. But I'm more interested in the how American cities are trying to reinvent themselves to be more uh, oriented towards pedestrians and cyclists and and at the same time trying to do this without utterly gentrifying themselves. It's a sort of an interesting uh, battle that's happening on the ground. Architecturally, I guess my main concern would be um, something, a history that we both share, which is what's going to happen to Marcel Breuer's Whitney or Frickney or whatever we're calling it now mm-hmm. uh, with this news that, you know, the, the, the Frick's lease will come up on the Whitney and you know, that, that's some idea that this might be you know, turned into, you know, private residences or I have no idea what. Uh, to me, the Whitney is, that's on the very, very top of the list of my favorite buildings in New York and America, you know, it's right up there with, for me, the Grand Central, the Whitney, uh, New York Public Library. Those are like my great buildings of New York. And I, I just can't imagine the Whitney not being a, a public building in a museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. To me, that'd be really tragic. I, I don't understand how um, the powers that be in New York could have, have let that come to this. Well, sir, you are preaching to the choir, but today's sermon is coming to an end. And I thank you for making time today, Mark. It was great to have you on. It was a pleasure to do this. I thank you for thinking of me. We've been speaking today with Mark Lamster, the architecture critic of the Dallas Morning News, a professor in the architecture school at the University of Texas at Arlington, and a Loeb Fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.